This morning I'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, and unlike what it says in the bulletin, uh, verses 5 through 13, which is what I originally uh, gave to the church to print, I'll be uh, beginning uh, at verse um, 9, reading through verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and let's pray together. Father God, as we look at this uncommonly wonderful passage of Scripture, a prayer, a pattern of prayer given us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, a prayer and and words that we have recited perhaps more than any other portion of Scripture more often, a prayer and words that have become for us sometimes all too common, a prayer that we have prayed sometimes very quickly and very thoughtlessly, a prayer which perhaps in parts we don't entirely understand what it is that we're praying. Thank you, Father, for this marvelous prayer given us by our marvelous Savior. Thank you, Father, that your Spirit would Work in ways today in the one who speaks and those who listen and attend to the word of God that we might come to a new appreciation and a better understanding of just what it is that the Lord has taught us in this prayer. Thank you, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts that the scriptures would come alive to us in a fresh and new way today, particularly as we focus on this, which is called the Lord's Prayer. And thank you, Father. It will become a pattern for our prayers in a new and fresh way in the days ahead to the honor and glory of the one who taught us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I feel the Lord's pleasure in coming to be with you. I met some new friends today and uh, looking forward to getting to know others of you in the weeks ahead. There were several neighbors that lived side by side. They didn't really know each other all that well. And one of the neighbors came to uh, his uh, nearby neighbor and said, I hope I'm not being too nosy or not minding my own business like I should, but I notice you get dressed up every Sunday morning, and I notice that you get in your car about 10.30, and you go off, and you come back about 12.30, and I'm just kind of curious as to what it is that you do. And he said, I don't mind your asking at all. He said, no, I, I go to church. He says, you do? He said, well, I don't know anybody who goes to church anymore. As far as I'm concerned, church is just full of hypocrites. And the guy that asked the question said, I'll tell you what, I've got a dollar, 
And I'm going to be willing to bet you that you can't say the Lord's Prayer. And the man said, well, let me give it a try. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And the guy said, I didn't think you knew it. Here's your dollar. I think there's a question that's a legitimate question to ask even of us um, who would be familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And that is just how well do we know it? I mean, there are a lot of questions, I think, with regard to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you know it's found in Matthew uh, here, where we read this morning, uh, in chapter 6. Uh, it's found in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Is it found anywhere else? Do you know? Do you care? It's also in Luke, chapter 11. And an even shorter version than we have here. And neither of those prayers recorded for us have what we say at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Where did that go? Did you kind of miss that this morning when I read the Lord's Prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Where's that? But I'm getting ahead of myself. We open uh, this prayer, and and Luke, uh, in his context, has uh, Jesus giving this prayer as a response to a request by one of the the disciples. I don't think there's any question, but what you've discovered, as they did, that Jesus went off to pray a lot. Uh, And prayer was very important to him. And they saw how important it was to him, more important than it was to them, and somehow seemingly more meaningful to him in his relationship with his father than what they sensed was happening in their own prayer lives. And so I think they appointed one of them to, let's go ask him to teach us how to pray. I'd I'd like to have the kind of prayer life that Jesus has. And so in Luke's context, uh, outside of the Sermon on the Mount, we have one of the disciples saying, would you teach us how to pray? And so Jesus uh, gives that version in Luke of the Lord's Prayer as well. There are some other questions when he opens with our Father. Unless you know the word that Jesus used for Father, uh, you're not aware of the game changer that was for them and should be for us as well. And then in heaven, uh, there's a lot of questions about heaven, aren't there? A lot of unanswered questions, a lot of questions that are very curious that I'd like to know the answer to. I'll just say as an aside that Randy Alcorn has written a book called Heaven. If you're not familiar with it, I strongly recommend it to you. He admirably tackles all the questions I've ever had about heaven, and he does it in about three forms. One, he says, here's what Scripture says. And then in another form, he says, here's what I think it's saying in answer to these questions. And then in another form, he's saying, here's my guess. So he he at least is honest to show you what Scripture really says and and then goes beyond that to say what I think it says and then here's what I think. Um, And then when we go on down further, our Father uh, who art in heaven, or which art in heaven is what uh, the uh, Westminster Confession says, and I'm not going to lose sleep over which art and who art. Um, And then we come down to uh, the next matter, and that's hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, unless you've prayed the Lord's Prayer this week, you probably haven't used that word in your everyday language. Uh, What does it mean? Is it important? Uh, Hallowed be thy name. You bet it is. And then we come to thy kingdom come. And most of us would say, well, I thought the kingdom already came with Jesus. Why are we praying that it would come? 
And we'll try to answer that question too. And then we get into the whole business of debts and trespasses. Uh, we tend to be debtors here in the Presbyterian Church and trespassers most other places. Um, what's the difference? Is that important? Um, and then this whole business of asking forgiveness, and it raises the question when it says, as we have forgiven others who have uh, trespassed against us or uh, who were, who've been indebted to us, have we forgiven people? And if we haven't, is there a consequence to that? Uh, yes, there's a very serious one. And then the idea that I have of God is he would never lead us into temptation. Why would he pray for him not to lead us into temptation? And then this interesting question to me uh, about uh, evil, delivering us from evil. In the passage I read this morning from the uh, English Standard Version, it says evil. If you have the New International Version, it says the evil one, as does the Heidelberg Confession. So which is it? And does it make any difference? And the questions go on. So let's uh, dig into God's Word here today. and Let's talk about these things. First, talking about our Father. It really speaks of a relationship, and you've heard probably said before that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, and that's a very important distinction and a very important difference indeed. I'm going to uh, take the privilege of reading a, a piece from uh, one of my favorite preachers, Steve Brown, and he talks about the adventures of, of Huckleberry Finn. I'm going to read this in two uh, parts. I don't often read anything this long, but um, Steve is uniquely gifted and great, and I think it's worth the reading. In the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Huck is talking about the matter of prayer. He says, Miss Watson, she took me in the closet and, and prayed, but nothing come of it. Uh, she uh, told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get it. But it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. It weren't any good to me without hooks. I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. By and by, one day, I asked Miss Watson to try for me, but she said I was a fool. She never told me why, and I couldn't make it out no way. I sat down uh, one time back in the woods and had a long think about it. I, I said to myself, if anybody can get anything that they pray for, why doesn't Deacon Wynn get back the money he lost on pork? Why can't the widow get back her silver snuff box that was stole? And why can't Miss Watson wise up? No, says I to myself, there ain't nothing in it. After I read that passage not too long ago, Steve writes, I started dreaming, and in my daydream, I imagined that Huck had come to my study for counsel about his prayer problem. Tell me, he said, why can't I get no fish hooks? First, I said to Huck, in my daydream, your problem is, is that you're asking a perfect stranger for fishhooks, and no stranger is going to give you anything. You have trouble getting free fishhooks from Deacon Wynn, and you know him. How in the world can you expect to get fishhooks from God when you have never met him? You see, Huck, God has created you to be in fellowship with him, but you've been so busy with your fishing, you haven't bothered to get to know him. And when you decide to talk to him, the best you can do is ask for fish hooks. The problem is that you ask God for fish hooks, he always asks who it is that's asking for fish hooks. If it's a stranger, the request sometimes falls on deaf ears. You need to understand, Huck, that Christ died for you 
so that you would not have, a, have to be a stranger to God. Get that straightened out, and you'll be a whole lot closer to fish hooks. And so one day I had a call from John White. He was uh, one of my elders in Atlanta. Uh, he was the um, assistant to the president of Coca-Cola, so he was pretty high up there. And uh, he said, how would you like to meet our standing president, Ronald Reagan? Well, I didn't have to pray about that. And he said, he's going to be speaking at an Amway convention downtown Atlanta at the Omni, which has since been destroyed. Um, and uh, then there's going to be some, some of you that will have the privilege of meeting him afterwards and have a little photo op. So I said, great. So I got on my best suit and my best clothes, and I went down there. And boy, when I got there, and I thought I'd gotten there early enough, the lines just coming out of the Omni like spokes were at least 100 or 200 people deep outside the Omni. And I thought, oh, man, I'm never going to get in this place. It was hot. So I stood in line there, and I had been given a packet and a badge that I was supposed to wear. And as I was standing there, a man came up to me, and he said, sir, you come with me. And I'm looking around like he's pointing to me, and he is. And other people are looking around like, well, who's this guy? And I don't even know who this guy is myself. <laughs> and so he ushers me into the Omni, and there are just hundreds of people still waiting inside, inside the Omni. And uh, he ushers me down to the very front several rows that were marked out. And, and I was seated there. And then I looked around and I realized everybody seated on those rows had a, an orange dot on their name tag. And I realized that we were the ones that were marked out to have a special meeting with the president. And you've been marked out by God, those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've got an orange dot on your name tag in heaven. And he knows you and he has a relationship with you. And it's intimate. Heretofore, the people thought that God was inaccessible, unapproachable, distant, remote. The Epicureans, the Stoics, the Pharisees, and even the disciples. And now Jesus is talking about a relationship with our Heavenly Father. My daughter works for the Jewish Academy of Orlando. She'll be in her 17th year as a physical education teacher there. An odd uh, career for a Christian woman, uh, but she has... Uh, quite a witness and quite a testimony there. And as a side note, the last time I was here, I told you about her having spinal meningitis, and I left you hanging, not on purpose, as to whether she lived or died or came out you know, with some kind of deficit. Uh, she lived. She came out with no deficit at all, and she's going to be 48, this, uh, my little girl, uh, this September, and she's doing just fine, thank you. Somebody asked me as I was leaving, what, what happened to your daughter? And I got so caught up in the other part of the story that I didn't tell you. So at any rate, uh, she came home one night after having been at an evening affair at the school. And she said, Dad, you wouldn't believe what I, I witnessed tonight. And I said, what's that? So the little boy turned around and, and called his, his father Abba. And it's the word for daddy. And it's the game changer word that Jesus uses here. It's an Aramaic word. It's not a Greek word, but... Uh, a language that Jesus also spoke, Abba. Uh, that's a game changer. I mean, remote, inaccessible, uh, distant, uh, unapproachable? No, this is daddy. Uh, with all the reverence that we give to him still, 
And uh, again, I'll quote Steve Brown. I remember he said once, I, I understand Jesus being uh, my Savior and my Lord, but being my friend, being my Abba, that's, that's harder for me to understand. And so Jesus brings a new understanding to his relationship. It was shocking. In heaven, uh, the word's mentioned 550 times in Scripture. It's not something that's just mentioned in passing. Um, I can't wait for the new heaven and the new earth. But the, the current heaven uh, is described, and I don't know if you want to take it literally or not, in Revelation 21:16, but it's 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500, which in effect says that uh, the whole eastern side of the United States would be one story of 528,000 stories, 15 feet high. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? Especially for those of you in real estate. Um, what if you were an agent and you got a chance to lease that? 2,280 square miles a story. I mean, you'd be set for life doing that. Uh, wonder if there's enough room, even if all the families on earth today were to go to heaven, and I'm not suggesting they all will, you'd have 200 square miles of family. There's a lot of room up there. Uh, the question isn't whether it's a place that's prepared for us. The question is, are we prepared for that place? And a part of that preparation is entering into the special relationship uh, with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, and, and him being our daddy uh, in, a, in a loving uh, but respectful, wonderful way. And then uh, the Westminster Confession goes on to break this down. Uh, in the larger catechism and smaller catechism, to a number of questions, uh, six petitions that follow from this point on. Hallowed uh, be your name. A mother walked past the door of her son's room uh, at night as he was preparing for bed, and she heard him say, Dear Howard. And she couldn't stop, help but stop and, and inquire. i just curious what you're talking about when you say, Dear Howard, was that Howard be thy name? Uh, some people really don't understand this as well as we think we do. Uh, hallowed is a word that means holy. Um, you're on holy ground. Moses realized that when he was standing at the burning bush. One of the more, more interesting experiences I had, I preached in Taiwan once upon a time, and they have you take your shoes off before you come in the pulpit. Reverence. And he may be our daddy, but there's this holiness, there's this, this otherness, there's this reverence and reverential fear and love that we're, we're to have for him. And we're to keep his name hallowed. We just uh, uh, read the Ten Commandments, and the third of those is not to take his name in vain. I hear the Lord's name more in the golf course than I do anyplace else, but it's usually in violation of the third commandment. And his name's not being hallowed as it ought to be. It's interesting, uh, I was playing basketball uh, years ago, and uh, there was the Lord's name being used left and right. And one of the young guys that I was playing with, with Campus Crusade, stopped the game, and he said, look, he says, it just offends me, uh, it bothers me. Uh, can't we play basketball without doing that? And it's amazing, the guy shut up, and, and they... They didn't use the Lord's name in vain any longer. Uh, I'm glad he had the, the guts to, to say that. This whole business of, of the name. Um, the third word in the scriptures is Elohim. 
uh, I speak to Anne's uh, school uh, class once a year. Uh, they bring in a Christian, they bring in a, a priest, and they bring in a, a Muslim uh, because these kids are graduating to go to high school uh, and public school, and they want them to be exposed to what they're going to be exposed to. And I always talk to them about uh, the Trinity, and uh, Elohim is in the plural. There are only 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1, and Elohim is mentioned 32 times. Elohim is mentioned, I'm going to have to look at my notes here because I forget, um, 2,570 times in the Old Testament. There's another word for God, uh, Yahweh, and there's a long history to that becoming Jehovah. And I notice even in your own bulletin, you have capital L-O-R-D for Jehovah. And it's interesting that that word appears over 8,000 times in the, in the scriptures. And what's really interesting to me is when they translate the Hebrew in the Old Testament into the Greek, and there's a book called the Septuagint that has uh, done that, they translate the word Jehovah into Kyrios, K-U-R-I-O-S. And in the New Testament, Jesus is called Kyrios 700 times, which equates him with the God of the Old Testament, rightfully so. And, and so we have the name. Embodied in the name of God is all of his attributes, his perfections, his properties, of which he's the sum total. And he's awesome, and we are to hallow this name. It's a wonderful, wonderful name indeed. Thy kingdom come. Yes, it did come with Jesus Christ in a new and fresh way. The kingdom is in the midst of you, but there's a past element, too, uh, where God's always been king. It's always been a kingdom. The kingdom is a, a theme and a topic throughout Scripture. But there's a way in which we talk about the future as well. Uh, we talk about the already that Jesus brought the kingdom, but the not yet. I'm not yet where I need to be in my sanctification process. I'm not yet glorified. Uh, Jesus has not yet come back. We're not yet in this new uh, heaven and new earth that's going to be ours to live in for all eternity. So there's that element when we pray, thy kingdom come. It's the not yet portion we're praying about as well, that that will become a reality, that that will come uh, in its fulfillment. And boy, am I looking forward to that. That will be uh, such a, a joyous day indeed. And then the whole business of thy will be done. You might wonder, really why we bother praying at all, if God is sovereign, if he's in control, if he's working all things together for good, if his will's going to be done, why pray at all? I mean, his will's going to be done anyway. Because prayer is God's means to God's ends in which we have been invited by him to participate, to be dependent upon him as we pray. And in ways that I don't fully understand, God will do things through our prayers that he wouldn't do otherwise. And it's a part and parcel of how his will is accomplished here on this earth. So he's invited us to participate with him in this matter of prayer. As you know, uh, one of the measures of prayer has been that of uh, ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Most of what we're looking at now uh, in this uh, third uh, petition um, is that of supplication. Thy will be done. 
You've heard the answers to prayer, yes, no, and wait. Uh, I've also heard that uh, if the request is wrong, you get a no. If the timing is wrong, you get a slow. And if you're wrong, you get a grow. You got to grow some yet. But if all things are lined up correctly, uh, where the request is right, the timing is right, you're right, you're going to get a go. And, and that's the beauty of this whole matter of prayer. Uh, but there are some requirements there uh, in this business. Let me uh, just finish up here on this little matter of Huck Finn and uh, Steve Brown. I like the way he finishes this up. Secondly, Huck, Miss Watson didn't explain to you that uh, prayer is a discipline, just like fishing. You didn't catch uh, many fish the first time you went fishing, did you? Now, the reason you didn't catch any fish was because you didn't know anything about baiting the line and casting and outfoxing that fish. But the more you worked at it, and the more you learned about fishing, the more fish you caught. Well, Huck, it's the same way with prayer. You've got to work at it. You can't just ask God for fish hooks because there's a lot more to prayer than asking. Prayer involves giving to and loving and growing and deepening. Sometimes prayer is just being with the one who loves you because you like to be with him. Uh, sometimes when I'm praying in the morning, uh, my dog Lucy is with me. And one of my prayers, and I know this sounds silly perhaps, is Lord, help me to want to be with you as much as she wants to be with me. Help me to be as loyal to you and committed to you as she is to me. Help me to be as curious about where you're going and what you're doing as she is about where I'm going and what I'm doing. That's a meaningful prayer to me. It may sound silly, but she's just sitting there with me and uh, has eyes for for nothing but me most of the time. Uh, And that's just the way I planned it. Um, And and it goes on, when you find out that there's a lot more to praying than just asking for fish hooks, Uh, you'll be a whole lot closer to getting those fish hooks. Thirdly, Huck, you have to remember that God isn't just God. He's your father. Now, Huck, I know the kind of father you've had, and he isn't much of an example, but your heavenly father is a whole lot different than the daddy you've had here. Your father in heaven loves you and wants what is best for you. When you go to him and ask for fish hooks, uh, you have to be aware that if he uh, doesn't give you fish hooks, it isn't because he wants to make you miserable. If he doesn't give you fish hooks, It may be because he thinks it's best for you to go and whitewash Miss Watson's fence and then take the money uh, as you make and buy the fish hooks for yourself. Or it may be that your Heavenly Father just doesn't think you need fish hooks right now, and he's decided to wait a while to give them to you. And then finally, Huck, something strange happens to you when you start working at this business of prayer. You begin to find out that fish hooks aren't nearly as important as you thought that they used to be. You find out that you want to do more than fish. Now, that doesn't mean you have to give up fishing altogether, but it does mean that you're more willing to want what your father wants than just what you want. You might even find that fish hooks are at the bottom of your list. And Steve concludes in my daydream, Huck left my study to have another long think about the subject of prayer. When he got home, he found that someone had left fish hooks on his doorstep. Sometimes God works that way. And we pray daily for our needs. It's a little hard for me with a refrigerator full of food this morning to think about asking for my daily food. It's there. It's guaranteed. Why do we pray for this? Well, it's, it's a symbol, really, of, of necessities in life to be thankful that I have a refrigerator full of food. 
and I've got money to buy more food. It's kind of like a reminder of the manna that came day after day. Our money doesn't come to us day after, uh, our, our food doesn't come to us day after day only as, as it did with the Jews out in the wilderness. I had an interesting experience when I went to seminary. We went to Sturbridge Village. I don't know if you've ever been there in Hartford, Connecticut. And it's a contained community uh, where they grow their grain, they shoe their horses, they make their barrels. Uh, and for a city boy, it was kind of revealing because, you know, all I know is Publix. Everything is just packaged nice and neatly there. I don't think of the farmer. I don't think of the sunshine. I don't think of the rain. I don't think of the toil of the farmer at work. And, and, it, and it showed me the interdependence of, of people on the sunshine and the rain and on, on God to provide these things and the soil and the nutritions and, and nutritions. And, and it reminds me of the interdependence that people have on one another. And, and that's what this whole business is all about. And then this uh, fifth petition, forgive us. I was uh, at a bluegrass festival, uh, quite different than the beautiful music that we heard this morning, another form of beautiful music, uh, about a week ago up in North Carolina. And I I spoke with a gentleman uh, that was uh, in front of me, and we introduced ourselves, and I found out he was a Methodist, and he found out I was a Presbyterian. And he said, you know, I've got one question. Why is it that you use debts and we use trespasses? I said, because Presbyterians understand debt. Um, and, And... and you understand trespasses, and we don't as well as we do debt. And the interesting thing, the words here almost make no difference. Uh, the words for sin, stepping over the line or falling short of, of the glory of God. Uh, the word here that's used for debts is, is a word uh, that's used 30 times in the New Testament. 25 times it's used with regard to moral concepts instead of financial concepts. And, and the old saying goes that we owe a debt that we couldn't pay. And he paid a debt that he didn't owe. And then if we were to include verses 14 and 15, it draws the line even more clearly. For if you forgive others uh, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Whoa. Got some people you haven't forgiven? I'd get about the business of forgiving them real quick. That doesn't mean that you approve of what they did. That doesn't mean that they were wrong and you were right or you were right and they were wrong. Just don't carry that burden. You become their prisoner when you don't forgive them. And you also shortcut the Lord's forgiveness in your own life for prayer. And then we come to lead us not into temptation Uh, We discussed that a couple of weeks ago when I was here last. God does test us, but he's never going to test us or tempt us unto evil. It's a reminder to us that uh, some of the things we read in our prayers this morning, that we have a proclivity toward doing things we ought not to do and a proclivity of not doing the things we ought to do. Out of Romans chapter 7, it's interesting that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Jekyll and Hyde out of that. He was a Scottish Calvinist, and, and he wrote it out of Romans 7. I don't know why I do the things that I want to do and why I don't do the things I do. And so we're saying, I know what my proclivity is, Lord. Help me not to be tempted in those areas. Day after day, little bugs, roaches, flies, mice, they march off in a little path to their death in little traps. And their friends follow them. 
Isn't it wonderful that it only happens in the bug world, not in the human world? I say facetiously. Day after day, we just go down these little trails. It's just our nature. These little traps that take us away from a relationship with our Lord and deliver us from evil. Some of the earliest manuscripts uh, don't have, uh, and some of the best manuscripts don't have uh, the evil one, but some do. And the Heidelberg Confession suggests we use evil one. And I like that myself. Uh, The international version says evil one. Uh, Deliver us from the evil one. I think it makes it more pointed. Not just evil, but the evil one. And he's real, folks. And don't let anybody fool you any differently. Don't let anybody say, well, an intelligent person like you certainly doesn't believe in the devil. I don't believe in a little man in a red suit with a pitchfork and a pointed tail. But I I do believe that there's a devil prowling around like a a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And then this ending, uh, the best manuscripts don't have the ending we say to the Lord Prayer. Some of the manuscripts do, but not enough of them and not enough of the ones that we count on most have. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And if you ask me, and I'm glad you did, where I think that probably comes from, and there are other places in Scripture, listen to David's prayer in First Chronicles 29.11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. So why don't we stand together before we sing, and let's say the Lord's Prayer together a little more slowly, a little more thoughtfully, and maybe with a little more education as to what it is that we're saying when we say the Lord's Prayer. Please stand with me as we...